Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 100th episode, it's the return of my very first guest, Margaret H. Willison. Along the way, we discuss how to feel affronted ownership for a house you don't own, a cautionary tale about the crossover of old and new media that is buying stamps through Instagram, and the joys of old age, such as gracious vulnerability and spitting. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. Oh, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, oh, trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, not to think about you. No, 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 not to think about you. All right, Margaret. Lucas. For those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Okay. (laughs) I am Margaret H. Willison. I am one half of the Two Bossy Dames Culture Empire. I am one third of the Appointment Television Podcast. I am an occasional fourth chair on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. And this one rotates, and I'm going to go again with a classic. I am the putative winner of the imaginary reality TV show, America's Next Top Best Friend. <laughs> I had forgotten that that used to be part of your introduction. You know, it's, it's, it's danced around. I came up with a lot of these things back when guests were still responsible for introducing themselves on Pop Culture Happy Hour. And now they just introduced me for me. But, you know, they just roll off the tongue. It's a fun game to try and figure out taglines for me. What's funny is that in a lot of the setups for the episodes that I have, I'll send someone an email and just be like, oh, you know, how do you want to be introduced? Because I might know someone as a podcaster when in fact they're an artist, or I might know them as a writer when in fact they consider themselves something else. So I want to be like, all right, well, if I sum you up in a sentence, and some people write these really great kind of like about the author blurbs <laughs> that are about five or six like really creative sentences like oh you'll find them under a table at their nearest bar and wondering whether or not the world is ending and also where was that drink i ordered five minutes ago i'm just like <laughs> none of this is getting in i'm sorry person all i wanted was just to say yeah what sort of title to identify you by <laughs> but you know whatevs <laughs> happens to the best of us so i wanted to ask you something margaret yes lucas Because I was seeing in your Twitter feed the other day about how you and Carly Rae Jepsen are tangentially friends now because you have both submitted a word I did not know before, which is rosé wave. Oh my god, Lucas. What is rosé wave? Fill me in. I want to know. So, As someone who has had three classes of rosé tonight. Rosé wave is a genre not so much invented by 
uh, National Public Radio's music team, but identified the way that you would identify, you know, a species of animal, right? Like it already existed, but they've finally come a name to it. And it's basically mm-hmm. just like that perfect mix of chill, synthy pop and like oldies, like that song that came out four years ago that you were like, this should have been bigger than it was that you're always trying to get your friends to listen to from Top 40 Radio. For me, that is the song Shower by Becky G. Classic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't know why it's not as big as Call Me Maybe. I mean, I do, because Call Me Maybe is a genre-defining mm-hmm. masterpiece. <laughs> Correct. And basically, it's just like, and it's exactly what you want to be playing when you're like sitting on the patio with your friends and you've just finished one bottle of rosé and you're trying to figure out if you're going to open a second and like Cheryl Crow's All I Want to Do comes on and you're like, well, obviously (laughs) this is going to happen. It's that. It's that moment. So like Rosé Wave is really, it's like, it's a lifestyle. It's a place of mind. You know, it's just, it's the best. It's all I want to listen to all summer. (laughs) And if you want more definition, I think there are something like 16 playlists devoted to the concept from NPR right now. They've released three big master mixes that are like eight hours long. (laughs) And then in addition to that, they've had people contribute themed playlists. And I got to do one called Bed of Roses, which is (laughs) themed around the idea of like following the arc of a romance novel. So that was very fun. And then this year they did celebrity playlists. And so I think Trixie Mattel made one for Pride. And obviously Carly Rae Jepsen, who's kind of like, the patron saint of Rosé Wave, put one together (laughs) that uh, forced me to reckon with the fact that Ventura Boulevard by America is like a fucking bop. Oh, is this a clean podcast? This has never been a clean podcast. You were on the first episode. I know. And you swore a whole lot. Look, it's as much my thing to swear unconsciously as it is my thing to the first time I'm aware I've done it in the frame of a podcast to say, oh gosh, is this clean? And like, typically I will have sworn three to four times prior to recognizing I've even done it. One might say, Margaret, that you swear kind of like you breathe <laughs> and that you do it unconsciously, but also like your life depended on yeah. it. And once you start thinking about it, you think about how it happens and then you can't do it for a little bit. And then you do it again and then suddenly you're fine. Wow, that's a very accurate description, Lucas. <laughs> very accurate. <laughs> Rude attack. <laughs> so, I mean, since we've talked, initially you came on the very first episode, breaking one Kate Reculia's longest rubber band between first appearance and follow-up episode, <laughs> which only just happened when I think from, I think episode six to episode 98. Suck it, Kate. For her. And now you've gone from 1 to 100. Although you were around for episode 15, but thing is, that was interviewing me, so I'm not sure that counts. <laughs> Although, honestly, at this point, I mean, I've had enough bonus episodes, enough quiz episodes, enough oddball experiments that I think I'm way past 100 anyway, and I've just stopped <laughs> counting. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be your designated 100th episode. <laughs> the official one. Yes. And it's technically correct, which is the best kind of correct. I've always thought so. I have a much fancier mic setup than the last time that I was on this here podcast. That's for sure. Because I started dating a gentleman who has some audio expertise from his college years. And his first big Christmas gift to me was like a 
full upgrade of all of my podcasting rigs. So now I have this microphone that looks like a 1940s crooner mic from Sure. Like the kind that would drop from the ceiling in a boxing match so that someone could yell the name of the fighter a second time after they've said it the first time. A hundred percent. Yes. I mean, I was thinking more like, you know, crooners. I go to see a lot of sort of country, Americana, folk musicians. And like, it's the kind that they would like put in the middle of the stage. And then like both go up and like both sing into. And the bands would like come and gather around them like family band style. It's very much that sort of vibe too. If we were to shift it, it's the kind of mic that could capture the entire Carter family. Yes. If required. Yes, exactly. That is more my reference point. I do like that Stefan's gift to you was essentially, here, please take this so your audio setup stops physically hurting me as I walk past it. He never saw enough of my audio setup to really judge it before because my old apartment was so messy because it was like there were three years where I was in grad school and also working full time. And during that time, I made no effort to uh, ever have a pleasant space in which I slept. (laughs) And so he was mostly not allowed at my apartment. (laughs) I can just see just a very quiet, like, going to walk through the door and then the door closes in front of him. Don't touch my stuff. (laughs) It was more what I said and what I stand by is, no, only people who already love me are allowed to see this. (laughs) But I have also, since the last time we talked, moved from one neighborhood in Boston to another neighborhood in Boston. And that allowed me to get rid of a huge amount of stuff. And now my bedroom is also much smaller and where I spend much more of my time. And so it is both easier to clean and more imperative that it be kept clean (laughs) rather than treated as a odds and ends closet that I never let anyone into Well, I spend all of my time in the living room, which was my old strategy. (laughs) I feel like the move is a relatively new thing because hadn't you lived in like one apartment since you moved out of home, right? Pretty much, yes. Yeah. I've been in this apartment for a little over a year. They moved last June and it is great. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I'm very, very happy to be here. My old apartment was a slightly nicer space, but this is the best neighborhood in the entire world and I'm definitely not biased because I grew up in it. (laughs) Oh, you're back in Jamaica Plain then. I am indeed back in Jamaica Plain. Yes. And it's really beautiful. And like in my old neighborhood, Alston is where a lot of the college students who can't be fit in dorms all live. And since that's just like the dominant housing force in the neighborhood, there's very little continuity from one year to the next year in terms of who your neighbors are and very little care goes into the buildings and the businesses that go up around there because you know they're just not going to have repeat customers (laughs) it's rarely going to be worth someone's effort to move in the middle of their year of school Mm -hmm. when they're going to move at the end of that year regardless but there was this one house on the street that was like a home that people lived in continuously that had a tree and it had a garden and it had these cute little like red shutters and things like that. And I just thought it was the greatest thing in the entire world. It was my favorite house on the street. I was very attached to them. And then I moved to Jamaica Plain and it's like, that's all of the houses. <laughs> <laughs> all of the houses are houses real people live in. It's just like families live here. It's a known community. 
people are excited to be out and about. There's so many beautiful gardens. My Instagram stories are lit. <laughs> and it's great. The best thing is that in the last couple months, one of my across the street neighbors has adopted a French bulldog puppy. I guess when it's a French bulldog, when it's a purebred puppy, the likelihood that it was adopted is very slim, but acquired. Ruby, she is so cute and so sweet. And we've discussed plans to run her for mayor of Jamaica Plain. (laughs) Got my vote. But there's a particular feeling, and I know I've had this with several neighborhoods, where you see a house and you get a weird feeling of ownership because that's either a great house or just a house you could easily see yourself in if, you know, money and the people who live there were not involved in any way. I remember there's a, there's still there, there's a, up from my first apartment in in Sydney, across the street from the park where we used to go, where everyone runs their dogs, there was like this three-story concrete block of a house. And you could see from the relatively small but exquisitely placed windows that there were like floating staircases in the middle of it. And like, there was no ceiling between the living room and the floating kitchen that was halfway up the space. And looking in and seeing that, and it was the most designed I had seen a house at that time where I was the, you know, the young age of 22. Sure. But I was looking in and being like, that looks like the kind of house an architect would live in that they would make for themselves. And then they also, they had a rooftop terrace and garden and they had the plain white Christmas lights around the outside of the whole thing. And they would have parties up there. And I'd be like trudging to the store at like, you know, nine o'clock at night. Because if I didn't, there would be no milk in the morning. And I'd walk past, I'd look up and I'd be like, that should be mine for no reason at all. Yeah, yeah. I feel that way about a lot of houses. It should just be mine. It was really funny. One of the weird things about living as an adult in this neighborhood that I grew up in is I always have to check my assumption that I'll just know everyone my age who's here. (laughs) Because for the first, you know, 25 years of my life, that was true more often than not if I was in Jamaica Plain. But now, like, this is just a place where, like, other adults move, despite the fact that they didn't grow up in this neighborhood. Like, carpetbaggers, Mm -hmm. what the fuck. (laughs) But one of my friends I've made as an adult moved to JP a couple of years ago, and she updated her Instagram stories with my favorite house. And I was like, oh my god, do you live near that one? Jamaica Plain is like a lot of 19th century big beautiful victorians san francisco painted lady style except with big yards so really beautiful houses but this one is a smaller sort of more like a craftsman bungalow style house and it was between the house i grew up in and the subway on foot and it had this really beautiful deep porch and like climbing flowering vines and a gorgeous garden and it's just like In a town full of sometimes overwhelmingly large homes, this one seemed like just the amount of home you would most want to have. And Megan was like, oh my god, it's one of my favorite houses too. And it was just like a really beautiful bonding moment for the two of us. We both picked that house. What I do find tough about this neighborhood is that housing stock has gotten so expensive that like I can't even effectively fantasize about owning these homes because it's like well I'm not married to an investment banker so (laughs) fruitless fruitless to even hope which made visiting Philadelphia last week really interesting like it's just like the difference in how I feel when I'm walking down streets where it's like oh just people own these houses. <laughs> I'm in a city and just like normal people who make normal amounts of money 
can buy houses here. It's just a great thing to feel. Oh, yeah. Trust me. Kimiko loves watching the Property Brothers and <laughs> what's the one? The Chip and Joanna Gaines one? Ooh. I forget what it's called. You, you know the I one I mean. I do know exactly what you mean. Yeah, that one. And whenever they go, oh, we picked this person, this one single person is looking for a bachelor pad. You know, nothing big. Two story, three bedrooms, you know, big backyard, maybe a swimming pool. And oh, and their budget is $200,000. <laughs> and I'm just like, you're fucking kidding me. I could not get a parking space right. in Sydney for yeah. that amount of money. Yeah. One of my good friends is moving to Austin and she's like, well, there's no reason not to buy a house because they're all just so cheap. And like up here, it's like, yeah, 300000 will get you a condo. <laughs> and down there, it'll get you like a five bedroom home with built-in air conditioning and like a covered garage and like maybe a pool. And it's just like, why do we do this to ourselves (laughs) it's because we have ideas ideas that were implanted at a young age and probably shouldn't have like i remember like trying trying to explain to someone that i had trouble considering something a house rather than a building or an apartment block if it didn't have a pointed roof (laughs) and like like a triangular pointed roof at some part of its building and like trying to explain how important that was and then this person looking at me and going like no that's stupid I mean, I I have a hard time believing any house built before 1900, like, is a house. <laughs> or at least I did. I should say that the less likely I get to own a home, the more Catholic small C my taste in homes gets. Where it's just like, <laughs> everything looks great. <laughs> everything looks charming. Love a 1950s colonial. Love a 1890s craftsman. Love a modern construction, you know, just everything looks great. All houses seem miraculous. (laughs) You know what's great? Houses. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm just thinking back to the the other house that I had picked out of a neighborhood, and it was on... what was it? It was it was the street opposite Alice Street. It was the one that no one could get down because they parked on both sides, which then meant that it was like one lane in the middle of the street, one of those streets. And in the middle of it, there was this like what I I continued to think of as a New Orleans style mansion, even though it was nothing of the sort, because they had a massive like wraparound balcony on the top floor. Oh, love a porch. And big French doors on the front. So. <laughs> When it was hot, they would open the front doors and they would have dinner parties inside. Oh. And you'd walk past. Between the fence and the wall, there would be an ornamental wheelbarrow with plants growing out of it. Oh, my God. And I'm just like, like just just that I feel is, again, like you're saying, it's exemplary of like, that's a life I'll never had. And there I am, like a Dickensian <laughs> orphan, frozen to the glass, you know? Yeah. yeah. If you could have a house with like one architectural feature what would it be when i was younger i would have said a spiral staircase but i have since spent the night at an airbnb that had one and what i found is that an open back spiral staircase clips the heels of your feet as you walk down it (laughs) which is hell in the dark especially for someone as clumsy as me right but at the moment i'd say i am a big fan of the continuous kitchen to living room Mm. because i am someone who enjoys entertaining and now as a parent likes to be able to make my coffee while hero is playing in the living room and keep an eye on him and just sort of that kind of that nice flow of a house from front door through to kitchen or living room then out to the back i think is a great thing for me which is not really a feature 
but I am then going to flip the question on its head and I'm going to say a fireplace. I am a big fan of an actual wood-burning fireplace. Environment be damned. Those are strong answers. I support Mm. all of them. I think I would be torn between the true thing I would enjoy having, which is a large wraparound porch with a portion of it screened in for sleeping, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and a widow's walk, which is the thing, like the little porch on the very top of a coastal sea mansion. So you can stare out into the ocean and wonder when your true love will return. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. You know, um, like that guy from Once Were Warriors did in Aquaman. Right, or stand up on said walk and look out at the ocean that took your true love from you. <laughs> oh, so many years ago. You know, either or both are perfectly suitable moods. And, like, I like the aesthetics of houses with widow's walks. Like, it's just a strong vibe. But the reality is, like, I am not a creature who functions well in direct sunlight. So, like, a roof deck is really more of a punishment for me than a reward. Oh, yeah. It's so much sun, Lucas. It's just beating down on you like you're on top of a house or something. It's wild. (laughs) And also, anything with any kind of outside facing, like, you know, a balcony or... We've got a a light well in the middle of our house Mm -hmm. where sort of next to the kitchen, there's a little space from where they extended the living room. Between the bathroom window, there's a kitchen window, and then there's the wall of the living room and that's just in sort of an empty space and there's a little door that you can get in there because there's like a, a fuse box and a few other things in there but what you find is that you have to clean those places mm. and because those are places you don't use they build up things like all that shit that falls off trees and i'm not talking leaves i'm talking like you know little nuts and spores and all kinds of stuff that builds up and what we then found is that if you if that happens then water starts to overflow on things sure so yes we are now much more diligent about cleaning that it is rough to find all of the things that you didn't realize you had to do to keep a house functioning oh adulthood is bullshit yeah adulthood is garbage i i object to it wholeheartedly my only comfort is that like i always knew i'd hate it (laughs) i was never one of those kids who like wanted to be a grown-up i was like that seems like bullshit. I want to be 10 forever. This is one of those things where it's like, it's a crossover between the it's not fair of a kid and no, that's actually not fair of an adult, which is with this place, we have a little uh, sort of a fenced in backyard. It's more of a deck than a backyard and it's all wood kind of to the edges, but it's closed in on our side. So we love it. And we've got the, the doors at the back that open up straight onto it. And so that's also where our clothesline is. And I remember it was this like beautiful, sunny summer day and it was windy. So we do, we washed all the sheets and like hung them out. And it was this, like we, we were playing there with Hero and we went in for the night. And what we found, and this was maybe three months after we'd moved in, is that one of the large trees in the neighbor's house. Oh no. Doesn't just drop leaves. Uh-huh. Drops these little red spores that come down like someone oh. is sifting flour <laughs> maybe 20 feet above you. And we're still finding them in like some of our linens that we hung up that month like i thought i shook everything out we rewashed everything because when that when it landed on wet linen it then stained red down them oh no and like i can't even go get mad at the person it's not even their fault no i can't even go over and went look what your tree did but it's like yeah it's a tree that's what trees do but it's like that that perfect frustration of no i understand exactly what has happened it's still bullshit (laughs) I'm still mad. <laughs> I've moved onto a street that is covered in oak trees. And let mm-hmm. me tell you something. Like, you have no idea. Like, 
acorns falling repeatedly from oak trees is low-key the loudest sound in the entire world. Oh, it's also deadly. I mean, we've got some magnolias in the neighborhood that drop those seed pods and they hit the ground like hand grenades. <laughs> you'll, you'll be walking and I wear noise-canceling headphones and you hear that whack and you look back and you go, oh, that was nearly me there. <laughs> if I can take a slight tangent into adult unfairness, it's one of these situations where it was like a perfect storm of bureaucracy, inconvenience, and convenience, if I can explain. So I had been thinking I was going to send a letter, and I think I must have been talking about it, and my phone was listening to me in that way that apparently people think it does, because I was then served a targeted ad for a commemorative stamp from uh, Australia Post. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it was like exemplary crayfish of the Australian waters. And I'm like, okay, you have my attention. And so I did the stupid thing and I clicked on the ad. It took me to the Australia Post shop, which then said that, oh yeah, you can buy stamps here. You don't have to go to the post office. Isn't that great? Oh, and the shipping is free because we're the post office. And I went, oh, well, that's convenient. Sure, I don't know when I'm going to get to a post office. I know I need to send a, a letter. Why don't I order these things? And I click on them and I'm like, okay, great. You know, three mm-hmm. bucks for three $1 stamps, done. And it's been a couple days and I think, oh, I wonder what my stamps are. And I look, and then I read the fine print, and it says seven to ten working dates for delivery. And I went, ugh, okay, <laughs> fine, whatever. I guess he got me. It's free, so I can't complain. A couple of days later, a couple of days later, hasn't arrived. And then I get a little thing on my phone where it's like, oh, an attempted delivery was made. <laughs> and I went, okay, well, I presume it'll be there on the porch when I get home. But it wasn't. There was a card oh, no. saying I had to report to the post office on Saturday morning. It was then Tuesday to collect my registered post letter that they had sent to me in order to sign for the $3 worth of stamps that I had requested. Wow. And then I got to the post office and I waited in line and you know, got there maybe maybe 20 minutes in line because, you know, for all the post offices apparently failing, I don't know why there is a line at the door whenever I go there. Yeah. So I get to the to the front and I'm like, oh, I've got this card. I'll kind of seize my ID. Sure. And they look at my ID and they go, uh, this address doesn't match. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. It's, um, a, you know, I haven't had my license updated yet. Instead of 39, it should be 57. And the card is addressed to 57. <laughs> so he looks yeah. at the card, looks at my license, picks up his pen, writes on the card, crosses out the 57 and writes 39. Mm-hmm. And then walks into the back before I can say anything. Oh, no. And he's there for 12 minutes which means you're everyone in line's least favorite person (laughs) oh my god and then he comes back and he looks angry and he goes there's nothing here when did you receive this card oh tuesday are you sure it was delivered to you yes okay (laughs) and so he looks at it i said now pal i just want to say you did change the address there it should have said 57 but you live at 39 no i live at i live at 57 <laughs> I, I crossed off the 39 remember and he goes oh so then he goes back then there's three minutes and he comes back with my letter and he's like here it was <laughs> you know you should get that address updated and i'm like what it means guy and <laughs> and i'll tell you this and i'm not going to say my street name but i live on the same street i just moved up the road to a new house so he must have walked past a registered post letter that was addressed to l brown with everything on the address identical except for the number that he just crossed out right and And then he went no that can't be it 
So then I got the stamps and I brought them home and I promptly forgot about them and I have yet to mail the letter. That sounds like exactly how buying commemorative stamps would go. <laughs> they were really nice stamps, though. Well, um, the bl- blue you know, crayfish of Australia. In six to 12 months, when you rifle through that particular stack of things on that particular desk and you find them again, you're going to be really delighted. <laughs> I will be. And I will then turn to whoever is standing near me and I will go, you know, I have a story about these stamps. <laughs> Completing my metamorphosis into the old man I always knew I was going to be. <laughs> Look, it's, <laughs> those repeating stories has just been in all of our bones. It's just been like our future. I finally, I've started thinking about aging and what i've realized is that i want to just start cultivating around 50 just like incredible comfort with being vulnerable around other people and asking for help because like if you live past 60 like that's just like a lot of what you have to do a lot of the times you have to be like oh hey my knee isn't working as well as i'd like it to today let's change the plans or like you know just any number of things you need a lot of help And if you are uncomfortable asking for help, it doesn't actually decrease how much you need it. It just makes the process of other people giving it to you so much more unpleasant, right? So I just want to cultivate gracious acceptance of other people's help. I say that like I don't have it already. See, that makes you a better person than me because I want to go the whole Jenny Joseph route. Do you know Jenny Joseph's warning, the poem? No, I don't think so. Oh, Oh, Margaret, (laughs) do I have a poem for you? I'm excited, man. Now, you got to imagine, and it's a relatively short poem, so I will, in fact, read it in its entirety. Okay. But I want you to think of this as being intoned by a Maggie Smith-level English voice. Sure, got it, got it. Like iron in the backbone, looking down the nose at a tiny pair of spectacles kind of voice. Sure. What is a weekend? Mm, Yes. Got it. All right, here you go. It's called Warning by Jenny Joseph. When I am an old woman, I shall wear purple, with a red hat which doesn't go and doesn't suit me, and I shall spend my pension on brandy and summer gloves and satin sandals and say we've no money for butter. I shall sit down upon the pavement when I'm tired and gobble up samples in shops and press alarm bells and run my stick along the public railings and make up for the sobriety of my youth. (laughs) I shall go out in my slippers in the rain and pick flowers in other people's gardens and learn to spit. You can wear terrible shorts and grow more fat and eat three pounds of sausages at a go or only eat bread and pickle for a week and hoard pens and pencils and beer mats and things in boxes. (laughs) But now we must have clothes that keep us dry and pay our rent and not swear in the street and set a good example for the children. We must have our friends to dinner and read the papers. But maybe I ought to practice a little now. So people who know me are not too shocked and surprised when suddenly I am old and start to wear purple. How good is that? <laughs> it's a great poem and honestly a great, love it. a great theory of aging that I also embrace. Now, I'd never heard that poem, but I did know of that poem because it inspired, I think, either the Red Hat Brigade or the Purple Hat Brigade. But regardless, there are groups of women who get dressed up in the combination of colors she mentions at the beginning of the poem and just like go out and do cultural events around various different cities. Oh, that's cool. Inspired by this poem. Being willing to accept other people's help is more for my comfort than it is to comfort the people around me. I still also intend to just be like a baddie (laughs) (laughs) and demanding 
to just take full advantage of what finally being free of the tyranny of the male gaze will allow me to do sartorially and personally. No, I'm with you. Just really lean into that crone lifestyle. (laughs) Also, hey, Sherry. Sherry's nice. Yes, Sherry's great. Yep. Again, I'm, I'm leaning straight into, again, this reference will make no sense to you because you've yet to read any Discworld. But I'm leaning into the Nanny Ogness of it all, which is Nanny Og is an old lady who is described as an, a face like an apple that's been left too long in the sun. <laughs> Hashtag goals. Yeah, we'll drink whatever is put in front of her, especially if it's free and keep it coming and make a dirty joke and nudge someone in the ribs in a way to make them profoundly uncomfortable, but also be (laughs) extremely serious. And by the way, I know that you took the plate that we left you at the dinner at our genie's potluck, and I will be looking for that to be returned to my porch, young man. (laughs) (laughs) Is she Tiffany's grandmother or is that someone different? It's someone different, but she is related in that she becomes one of Tiffany's mentors. There we go. In the later books, yeah. Various people come to see her, and she has a million pictures and knickknacks and other things around her living room. And you can tell uh, at a casual glance which relatives are in good standing and which are not. (laughs) A knowing gaze that says, yes, that's my gnome out front, and you're lucky he's only peeing in the garden. (laughs) (laughs) fantastic i really do someday i'm gonna have world enough in time to read a lot of terry pratchett and boy what a great day it'll be (laughs) oh it'll be a real good day me and Catherine van arendonk will be very happy for you a lot of people will be really thrilled kitty first among them (laughs) speaking of Catherine and parenting as that is like the primary way that Catherine and I interact now is mm-hmm. in combined sympathy for our maniac children. <laughs> but yes, I have heard that within your podcast family, there is yet another baby. There is. There is baby Henry. I got to meet him last week. He's pretty great. He's real cute already, which is impressive because fresh babies are really hit or miss looks wise. Oh yeah, you get that you get the Winston Churchill. Yeah, exactly. Kind of smushy face. And he's really he's got his face has got a lot of character to it. Very cute. Right now he's mostly just sleeping, crying, eating, crying, pooping, and crying, and then like doing the cycle again. I mean same, but But like that's what he should be doing at this age. <laughs> that's that's very developmentally appropriate for him. It's good job. And he's still pretty enchanting. He's real small, <laughs> Lucas. Very small, tiny little feet and hands and ears. Mm-hmm. So that was thrilling. <laughs> Andrew and Sue's look offensively good for people who are getting five cumulative hours of sleep in each 24-hour period. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. And that's the thing. That's the kind of stuff that I will occasionally remind Kimiko of when she's like, you know, we should have another one. And I will go, let me remind you. And she's like, oh, it wasn't that bad. <clears throat> let me remind you. But... No, it's it's just one of those things where, yeah, a few friends have had kids in the time since I've had Hero. And, yeah, it's one of those things where you either forget or you remember it with that sort of fond wistfulness. Although I did find myself thinking today that right now, at the age of, what, two and a month and a bit, mm-hmm. Hero is at the perfect stage where when I'm trying to put him to bed and he is, like, being awake and chatting about this one time, he went to his Nana's friend's place and brought her a balloon. <laughs> He said, happy birthday. And she said, thank you, hero. Classic. And he was explaining all of that to me. And I, and I said, okay, hey, 
pretend to go to sleep and close your eyes. <laughs> and he is old enough to understand what that means and do something in response, which is to close his eyes and make fake noises. But not so old that he understands the ulterior motive I have in asking <laughs> him to do this particular pretend game. <laughs> So I'm right in the middle of that Venn diagram. It's a sweet spot. That's the sweet spot. Honestly, yeah. if you could just import a child to in a quarter and like mm-hmm. not have your bonds to them diminished in any way by not having brought them up since they were a newborn, which I realize mm-hmm. I'm now just describing adoption and I think that that is actually possible. <laughs> but adoption at that age generally comes from some tragedy. There are some complications. There's some family displacement. None of that is ideal. I mostly just mean like if if the starting point for babies could be two and a half year olds, I would be much more likely to consider having one. I don't know, Margaret. A baby would probably want to see the inside of your room. A baby would be allowed to see the inside of my room. A baby wouldn't have the framework to judge it. One, they would already love me. And two, like, what do they know from mess? This was always a big dominating feature of my childhood. My mom is like not much of a housekeeper because she had other priorities. But like our house was a is still like a big lovely victorian with a huge yard and it was never like it was dusty and cluttered but it wasn't in any other way inhospitable and she'd be like oh Mm. we couldn't possibly have people over children just we can't (laughs) have kids over margaret it's just it's too embarrassing and it's like kids don't care Kids just think that the, you know, closet's going to take them to Narnia. Like, this is a dream come true for children. (laughs) Yeah, they'll find all kinds of stuff. It'll be a game. Yeah, exactly. It's great. We always have the greatest dress-up boxes. So I say, kids don't care that your apartment is messy. Kids just care if you don't have toys. (laughs) That's true. Although they will find toys if you don't provide them toys. Whether that, like... Because I had this happen with, we went over to see Kimiko's friend Julia, who had a brand new, like, two-week-old baby, Mm -hmm. who I got to hold and then fell asleep. And I got to watch her father put on a pair of sunglasses and then literally fall asleep as we were sitting on their balcony having coffee. And, like, he just, yeah, put on his sunglasses and we were all talking. I looked over and I'm like, he's asleep. I'm not going to bust him on this. He's allowed. He has a two-week-old daughter. Yeah. But the majority of my time in that apartment was realizing, oh, right. They don't have a kid that can move of their own volition. (laughs) I have one of those. Yeah. So I'm picking ballpoint pens, batteries, a safety pin. (laughs) Just like like reaching over Hero's head and just like, nope, nope, nope. And he would just go on to the next thing. And they look over and my arms are full of stuff. And they went, oh, we should probably do something about that. I'm like, you've got time. It's fine. (laughs) Yep. That is, I think, that is one of the only good things about babies. Is like, mm-hmm. they just stay where you put them. That's why nine-month-old is actually also a really good age. Because if they're reasonably well-tempered at that point, like, their body knows how to do the eating, digesting, and sleeping it's supposed to do. And that's not as traumatic mm-hmm. for them as it is for a fresh-baked baby. And, like, mostly they just want to be put into a stroller and, like, tooled around so they can look at things. Which is great for me because I just want to walk around and look at my neighbor's gardens. <laughs> it's very good there will be a particular time when you you'll be like oh i will go for a walk with hero and i, I will he'll fall asleep about halfway through and it's like well now i can do what i want mm-hmm. and just you know happen to be uh, four-wheeled as opposed to two-footed but that's fine i can work around that true very true mm-hmm. 
Do you have any other questions for me, Lucas? You know, I did, but they've all flown out of my head now. Ah, natural, natural risk of chatting. <laughs> oh, yes, I do remember now. Mm-hmm. So, Margaret, I see that you are back on the Jupiter Ascending train. Oh, yeah. So, I presume this is due to the fact that Jupiter Ascending is now back on streaming for the first time. Correct. God knows when. That was indeed. Did you see Jupiter Ascending in the theater? Did you discover it on home video? What was your... I saw Jupiter Ascending in the theater, and I have not seen it since seeing it in the theater. It is both better and worse than I remembered it being, in that, like, the wacky shit is just so wacky. And so great. And God bless Eddie Redmayne. It's like the only movie I've ever really liked him in. Because he's just straight balls to the wall. Knows exactly what kind of movie he's in. Has no ambivalence about performing it. But what I'd forgotten is how much boring and incoherent stuff there is around the like absolute banana pants nonsense. And and that was a tough thing to recall because we were watching Christina and I with a couple of people who'd never seen it before and they just kept wanting us to explain what was going on and they were like did we did we miss something and we're like no they just fully haven't told you why the space hunters are hunting the lead lady we pause it's like an hour into the movie before you find out the bees can recognize royalty Yes. And, like, vaguely what that means. Hey, Sean Bean tells you that. Sean Bean <laughs> does tell you that. And then, twist, doesn't die. Shocking. Very out of character for Sean Bean. But, I mean, it's one of those things where, I think I watched it over at Kimiko's place, and we had been on, on a, a run of being like, you know, let's let's put our phones away when we watch a movie so that <laughs> you know, we can really pay attention to it. And I think we were maybe six minutes into Jupiter Ascending, and she looked at me and she went, Go and get your phone. I know you want to. <laughs> I did. I really did. It is definitely a phone required viewing experience. You can't just like hang out there and watch the whole thing from beginning to end. Phone and alcohol are both very necessary. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, I think it was when the Asian lady with the shark hover bike and the cyber goth fake dreadlocks yeah, yeah. was like hovering over the cornfield and I was shouting at the screen, why is this movie not about her? <laughs> An incredible question. <laughs> yes. And it was before you find out that Channing Tatum is a werewolf angel. Yeah. With rocket skates. You know, it is just, it is a visually stunning movie and I will never not be proud of the Wachowskis for being able to con Hollywood out of that much money. Well, it's one of those things, and it was, I felt similarly with that also bad, but also really interesting Valerian movie, City of a Thousand Sure, Planets. sure. Very, very much the same vibe. Luc Besson. Big, messy, strange ideas. <laughs> and again, they fly past these like background things that that background thing could be its own movie. Yeah. You know, crustaceans living in giant circuit boards and forming connections and, you know, being the electrical undercurrent of the city. But they're their own people and they have their own society that are is run through on the way to another action set piece. But I'm just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's that? <laughs> yeah, unpack this one for me, guys. Again, I just completely lost my train of thought. It is 1130 at night. Yeah. I've been up since 530 in the morning. Oh, baby. <laughs> Well, what do you think? Do we think do we think we've got our podcast here? I think we do. Awesome. Well, Lucas, it was a pleasure being here. 
Congratulations on getting to 100 episodes and also some change. Absolutely. I am very proud of it. And it's something that's taken a little while to do, but I am still at the point where we were at a birthday party for one of Kimiko's friends and she's like, oh, he he had to get up early for a podcast this morning. (laughs) And that friend then turned the full beam of her interest upon me and said, a podcast? What sort of podcast? And I froze <laughs> like a deer in those headlights. Aww. And I was just like, uh, it, it, it's, you know, I just, I, I interview people about, you know, stuff they liked when they were younger and it's an excuse to talk to creative people. And, oh, have you done a few episodes? I said, oh, it's coming, coming up on a hundred. And she's like, what's it called? I'm going to subscribe right now. She Aww. takes her phone out and I'm, I am like, going, oh, no, no, please. No. <laughs> it's like, in theory, this is what I want, right? It I is. want people to know me, to to be like, yes, I would like to listen to that thing. But in that moment, it's lucky I did not break the stem of the wine glass that I was holding because Aww. I was just sort of clutching. You know how you kind of nervously peel at a beer bottle label? If yep. there's no label, you're just clutching a glass. True. So it's like, uh, anyway, yes, I am extremely proud of my podcast, even though it occasionally makes me embarrassed at parties. You should be very proud of your podcast and you shouldn't be embarrassed about it at parties. It's a pretty cool thing to have done, especially 100 episodes of it. Oh, thanks, Margaret. Now, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? They could find me on Twitter at Mrs. Friday Next. They can also find my newsletter at twobossydames.substack.com. And they can find my podcast at atvpodcast.com. And I tweet about all of those things. And all of those things also have Twitter accounts. So, you know, act accordingly. Those are the chief location they should go looking for me and appointment television has a patreon and so people should go and give you money and make andrew watch stuff yes for seven dollars a month you can make my co-host andrew new parent watch an episode of whatever you want lucas had him watch an episode of i believe a mexican wrestling show lucha underground it's very good it sounded great honestly i think you made a wonderful choice what's funny is i didn't even pick one of the story heavy episodes where it talked about how a businessman was capturing luchador souls in order <gasps> to fuel his throne of skulls so he could take over the world sure as you do the natural yeah the natural thing i'm impressed at your restraint <laughs> Well, hey, it's like John Oliver said, wrestling, it's better than the thing you like. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, we should wrap up. Thank you so much for coming on, Margaret. I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much to Margaret H. Willison for her time, and honestly, thank you to all of my guests, be you new or returning. For Margaret's original signature cocktail, I did a 50-50 martini, which had equal parts of dry vermouth and gin. I've started with that template and come up with something else entirely, and in honor of Margaret and former guest Sophie Brookover's wildly successful newsletter, I've dubbed it The Bossy Dame. In a mixing glass full of ice, Combine one and a half ounces of botanical gin, one and a half ounces of sweet vermouth, 
a quarter ounce of Grand Marnier, a quarter ounce of Amaro Montenegro, and a dash of Angostura bitters. Stir vigorously to combine and strain into a rocks glass with fresh ice. Top up with three ounces of club soda. Garnish with a wedge of pineapple. Impeccable discernment, insouciant charm, effervescent bubbles. Enjoy. recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every second Thursday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you could pledge as much as you want. You could buy me a new laptop. That would be really cool of you. Patrons get bonus cocktail recipes, physical mail, and I would just really appreciate it a whole bunch. If you would like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It'll help people find the show. You can also write a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist going all the way back to episode one. That's nearly, it's coming up on 24 hours of music. It's a lot of music, including this one. It's Shower by Becky G. In fact, all the music on this episode was taken directly from Margaret H. Willison's NPR Rosé Wave playlist, which is, of course, called Bed of Rosés. I update our playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe to get new music in your ears. Next week, I'll be joined by Matt Fisher, musician and co-host of the Smark of the Beast podcast, to talk about straight-edge hardcore and being part of a scene. Join me, won't you? I gotta ask though. I, I, I just realized I've completely blanked on your boyfriend's name. I don't. Oh sure. no no no, that's fine. His name is Stefan. <laughs> oh Stefan, right? He does have a name. Okay, good. As opposed to that guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that guy. <laughs> uh, no, we're not gonna do. That. <laughs> oh, that's going in the blooper reel. Um, so yes, and I shall spend my pension on brandy and summer gloves and satin sandals, and say we've no money for butter. Hang on, my cat is scraping at the door. Can you hear that? <laughs> I can. Beat it.